All right, so Happy New Year and welcome to our new Sunday School class. Over the next four months, uh, Desmond and I primarily will be teaching about <clears throat> biblical theology, and I'll just give a brief definition of what that is in a moment. Um, we're going to be following the outline of a book called God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible by Vaughn Roberts. It's an excellent little book, so I want to encourage you um, to pick that up if you're able and, and read it. Um, a lot of the stuff that we'll be teaching will come from that book, but there's not time to teach everything that goes through there. But it's a, it's a really helpful uh, book that Roberts has laid out. So when we talk about biblical theology, what we're seeking to do is to help us to see how the Bible works together as a whole, how it's constructed, how it's brought together. And as we see that, we're also going to see how it unfolds and how it progresses. So there's progression in the Word of God. It's headed somewhere. And that's what biblical theology sets out to do, is to help us to see the progression and movement of this one story and how all the little stories within this one story add to and complement that, that one narrative that we see from Genesis uh, to Revelation. Richard Barcellus uh, put it this way, and I, I think it was a good little synopsis that he gave. He says that biblical theology seeks to show us how the Bible goes from garden to glory, from the temporary to the permanent, from good to better, from Eden to the new Jerusalem, from creation to new creation, and all of this via redemption by Christ, right? So Jesus is the center of the Bible. So everything that we look at in the scriptures is relating to his person and his work and what he would accomplish, either in types and shadows as we see it in the Old Testament or as we see it revealed to us in the New Testament in the totality of what he has done and where all of this is, where all of this is headed. And that, that's a really important point because, you know, when we think about Scripture, um, sometimes we can kind of get lost in the smaller stories in the Scripture and not seeing them in their proper context um, as a whole. <clears throat> and uh, Roberts, in his book, he begins in his introduction with, with a short story uh, that I think is, is helpful as we think about um, just understanding our Bibles. He said this, a police inspector went to visit an elementary school where he was asked to take a scripture class. So the police inspector began by asking, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? There was a long silence as the children shuffled nervously on their seats. Eventually, a little boy put up his hand and said, please, sir, my name is Bruce Jones. I don't know who did it, but it wasn't me. <laughs> the policeman thought that the reply was very humorous and witty, and so he told this story to the headmaster. After a pause, the headmaster replied, I know Bruce Jones. He's an honest young boy. If he said he didn't do it, then he didn't. <laughs> the inspector was exasperated. The headmaster was either rude or very ignorant. 
The inspector wrote to the Department of Education to complain and received this response. Dear sir, we're sorry to hear about the walls of Jericho and that nobody has admitted causing the damage. If you send us an estimate, we will see what we can do about the cost. <laughs> and so Robert starts this, you know, his book off with that, that humorous story, but he does so to help us to see how much uh, biblical illiteracy is prevalent within our day, and unfortunately, even within, within the church. Uh, despite the fact that the Bible remains the best-selling book of all time, the majority of people don't know exactly how the Bible fits together or works as a whole, or what even is the main message of, of the Scripture. Um, and, and that's a really, by the way, that's a really good question that you can ask people in evangelism, is what do you think the Bible is mainly about? Um, if you're interacting with people. It's a good way to get a conversation, conversation going. Much of the Bible remains unchartered territory, and especially the Old Testament. And I think if we're honest, we ourselves at times, as we read through the Old Testament, we, we find it maybe a bit puzzling at times, um, confusing. How does this work? How does this fit together? Uh, most of us are familiar with some of the more popular stories, in the Old Testament, Noah and the flood, Moses and the Red Sea, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, and so on. But even as we read those stories, sometimes we can be thinking, what relevance do these stories have to me today, right? And how do they point us to the person and work of Jesus? How do these parts that we're reading about fit into the to the whole of this story. Well, that, that is our hope that we have, that over these next four months together, by the end of this class, you'll have a clear or a clearer understanding of how God has worked in the past, how he's working in the present, and how he will work in the future. And, and that our time together will really help us to see how the Bible is knit together as one story, and how all of it is pointing to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, with that said, uh, let's just take a look here very simply at what the Bible is. The Bible is a diverse collection of different writings containing 66 books written about, by about 40 authors over the span of 16, 1700 years with two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and written in two main languages, Hebrew and Greek. And it includes a mixture of types, or what are called genres, of literature, which is what I have up on the screen, which you probably can't see. Um, so just looking at this now, it looks a lot clearer on my, on my iPad. So, um, But just to kind of lay that out there, you have, I'm just going to walk through these different sections here, these different genres of biblical literature. You have law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then you have what's called the history. And when we look at the uh, Old Testament, the history of Israel, Joshua running through Esther, and in the New Testament, when we talk about history, we're looking at the book of Acts. And then you have the wisdom and poetry uh, genre of the Bible, um, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. And then another category is prophecy, okay? You have all the Old Testament prophets, what we would call the major prophets and the minor prophets. And again, the reason that they're called major prophets is not because they're more important than the other prophets, but they wrote more. Uh, I mean, you look at those 
books, they, they covered a lot more. And the minor prophets, um, you have those as well. When we talk about prophecy in the New Testament, we're looking mainly at Revelation. Then we have the Gospels as another genre, genre Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then you have the letters. Okay? You have the Pauline epistles and then the general epistles in that as well. Okay? So that's, that's a helpful way to think about the different um, genres of Scripture. And although the Bible contains, as you can see here, just a great variety of material written by many human authors over a long period of time, it holds together as a unity. And, you know, that's something that I think what I just covered, probably most of us already know. You probably learned that very early on in your walk of what the Bible consists of, the 66 books and so on and so forth. But really take a step back and think again about the gravity of that reality. The fact that you could have all of these people writing over this massive span of time, and it all fits together, right? Try to have somebody do that today. Take five people and have them write on one subject and see how many different ways they would go with that and how in many points they would have discontinuity. And yet the scriptures hold together with this one storyline. And the reason for that, and that's the first point on your notes here, is that the Bible is one book written by one author with one main subject, okay? It's one book written by one author with one main subject. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the scripture says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, okay? So all scripture is breathed out by God. God is the author of his word, right? From Genesis to Revelation. Now, most of the New Testament had not been written down at this time that Paul was inspired to pen this to Timothy. So Paul's referring to here to, uh, to what we know as the Old Testament, okay? But the New Testament writers made a similar claim about what they were writing as well. They were convinced that they were, what they were teaching was also the very word of God. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, if I can have somebody read that for us. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Okay, so the, the emphasis there on that last point, as they do the other scriptures, right? So, so Peter here is pointing back to Paul's writings, and he's saying that Paul's writings are on par with the other scriptures, and what he would be referring to there would be the Old Testament scriptures that, that they had. So Peter's looking at prior revelation in the Old Testament, and he's looking at Paul's letters, and he's bringing those together and saying that they're the scriptures, that they're one in the same. So we recognize that although many men were used in penning the word of God, that God inspired all those men to write, as Peter says also in 2 Peter 1, 21-22. 
20 and 21 when he says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, as we look at the scriptures, we recognize this is God's word, that he's the ultimate author. He's, he's the primary author, and he uses these secondary authors to pen these, pen these things down. Now, the Bible obviously covers a great deal of ground, and this is on your notes as well, this next point here. But there's one supreme object that binds it all together, Jesus Christ. Okay? He is the one supreme object in Scripture. His person and his work and the salvation that God provides through him. And that is what is most clearly displayed for us in the New Testament, but it was also the focus of the Old Testament as well. As I mentioned, you saw it in types and shadows in the Old Testament. And many of you have heard me preach, and a text that I constantly refer back to is Genesis 3.15 which we would say is the first proclamation of the gospel, the promise of what was to come, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, right? So right back there in Genesis 3.15, and then working throughout the rest of the scriptures, you have this focal point in on this one who would come and undo the effects of the curse, and he would come as the second Adam. Jesus himself testifies in John 5.39 you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Right? So Jesus very clearly laying forth here what the scriptures point to, and that is him in his person and his work. And then in Luke 24, verses 27 and verse 44, if I can have somebody read that for us. Okay, so just, just an excellent <laughs> testimony here from Jesus, beginning with Moses, right? Well, where does Moses begin? Genesis, right? That's Moses is writing the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets. So Jesus is, is interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, that would have been the ultimate Bible study right there, right? Can you imagine? Jesus is like, all right, let me unpack this for you. That's why afterwards it said, did not, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the, opened the scriptures to us? And just revealing to them his person and his work and how it was apparent throughout all of the Old Testament. Commentator J.V. Fesco said regarding this passage here in Luke 24, he says, Christ's appeal here is not to just select portions of the Old Testament, but to the revelatory whole as echoed in the references to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which are the three parts of the Old Testament. So when Jesus says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's not just speaking about little compartments in the Old Testament where he is. That was a way of saying the totality of the Old Testament. That was, that was the categories that those would have been broken up into. 
Additionally, the Apostle Paul echoed this sentiment in 2 Timothy 3.15. Speaking to Timothy, he said, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, what sacred writings would Timothy have been acquainted with? The Old Testament, right? Yeah, the Old Testament. And then watch what he says. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Can you preach the gospel from the Old Testament? Absolutely. Right? Can people come to a saving knowledge of Christ from the Old Testament? Absolutely. Right? Now, we have the full revelation, and we see all the types and shadows and the things that we're just pointing forward to, so it would be wise for us, since we have the full revelation of God, to help people to see the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament spoke about. But that was the testimony that Paul gave to Timothy that these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, to where they were pointing. They were headed in in a direction here. So again, Paul refers here to the Old Testament scriptures that Timothy had been acquainted with since his youth. And this, again, is important to understand, um, just this aspect of this has been the plan of God since the very beginning, to, to glorify his son and his person and his work. Uh, Because there are some that have the idea that God decided to send Jesus to earth only after his first plan had failed. Um, His original idea, we would say called plan A, was to give people an opportunity to become his people by obeying his law, but they failed, so he came up with another idea, plan B, to save people by grace through the death of Jesus. But as we read the scriptures, we recognize that nothing could be further from the truth than that right there, Chris. I have a uh, question. Sure. How does God fail? Say that again. How does God fail? He doesn't. Oh, okay. No, I was saying there, there are some, not me. Oh. <laughs> there are some who would, who would hold to that and say that, um, you know, Adam messed up in the garden. God's thinking through, okay, what should I do now? I'll send Jesus uh, to do that. Okay, so yes, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe that God has failed, is failing, or ever will fail in anything that he does. So God had always planned to send Jesus. This was the plan from the very beginning. And so the Bible, the whole Bible, points to him from beginning to end. In the Old Testament, God points forward to him and promises his coming in the future. And we see that in in types and shadows, as I mentioned. A helpful way that one of my professors in seminaries put it, he said, um, As you look at the scriptures in Genesis, and in particular with the promise that you have in Genesis 3, you have the gospel in seed form, right? Now, as that seed grows throughout the Old Testament, it takes on greater life, just like any seed does, right? It starts to grow, branches start coming out of it, leaves come upon it, and then fruit eventually starts to come upon that. And once the fruit ripens, let's say it's an orange, you can look back if you didn't know what that seed was initially and say, oh, that seed was an orange seed. Now, how do I know that? Because I'm holding an orange in my hand, right? In the same way, you can look back at Genesis 3.15 and you can say, that was a prophecy about Jesus, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. How do I know that? Because we have the fruit of the New Testament revelation that points us back to all of those promises that we have in the Old Testament, okay? And this is what Peter referred to as well, where he talked about the the prophets who were inquiring and searching carefully 
about the coming of this Christ that had been prophesied. They were trying to understand, how does this, all of this work together? How does it all fit together? Well, in the New Testament, we have the full revelation of God's plan and the fulfillment of it. So we can now look back on the Old Testament, and this is an important hermeneutical principle, how you study the scripture, is that you, in, you understand the Old Testament in light of the New. And that's what you see the prophets or, or the apostles doing is they're looking back on all these promises and they say, wow, here, here is the fulfillment that we have in Jesus. You see this very clearly, for example, when you have Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And he asks Philip, tell me, sir, is this, who, who is this about? And it says that Philip, starting with that passage, began to testify to him about the truth of Jesus. Right? So you have all of these things now that Jesus has come as the fruit, and we can look back and we can see all of the things that were pointing forward to him. So the Old Testament points forward to Christ and promises his coming in the future. And then in the New Testament, God proclaims him to be the one who fulfills all of those promises. Uh, so a good way of thinking about this, this is on your notes, what the Old Testament promises, the New Testament fulfills. Okay, what the Old Testament promises, the New Testament fulfills. Now, I want to make one more point here about the Bible being uh, one book. We want to make sure, let, let's say if we, if we just jump into a book of the Bible, like for example, maybe you're like thinking through, okay, where, where should I read you know, this year? Maybe I want to do a study on Daniel or, or something along those lines. It's important to understand where Daniel falls in redemptive history. In other words, what's been happening prior to Daniel's coming and what has happened after Daniel so that you're understanding it in its right context. As I said earlier, the Bible is one book with many smaller books that are working cohesively to present the unfolding story of God's plan to save the world through his son, Jesus. And because we have the privilege of having a completed canon or a completed Bible, we have the full revelation of God's plan and purposes which are fulfilled in Christ. And again, that's a very important hermeneutical principle or a principle as you study the scripture and how we understand it and interpret it. For example, if I were to preach a sermon, let's say on David and Goliath, I must interpret that passage not only in its historical context, how it was originally written, but I also need to understand that story in what we would call its redemptive context. In other words, David is, if, if I come out of that sermon with David as the hero, and I say nothing further than that, I haven't faithfully interpreted that passage, right? And the reason for that is because David had a greater son, right? And one who would come and sit upon his throne. And so I must get to Jesus when I talk about David, if I'm to be faithful to the scriptures. The story of David and Goliath, while it's a real historical account, is also pointing forward to something greater than itself. It's pointing forward to God's true king who would sit on the throne eternally, 
the God-man Jesus Christ. And the ultimate victory that Jesus would win for his people against God's enemies, right? Goliath was the enemy of God's people. So again, just to stop short and say that this is about David and Goliath and David being the hero and Goliath being slain by David would come short of faithful Christian interpretation. Because listen, if, if an unconverted Jewish person came into the congregation that morning and I simply preached about David and Goliath, they could amen everything I said. And I haven't preached a, preached a Christian sermon, right? Because I've got to get to Christ. And that was a point that Dennis Johnson made in his book called Him We Proclaim, is that if someone could come in with just an understanding of the Old Testament and just believing those things, for example, an unconverted Jew or even uh, a Muslim to some degree, uh, then it isn't a Christian message that was preached. And that's what we are. We're Christians. We believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the scriptures teach. So when we're looking at these stories, we must see how they're pointing forward to Jesus as well. We have to understand the trajectory and movement and where all of this is headed and that, again, is to the person and work of Christ. So we don't want to fall short of understanding the totality of uh, what the Scripture teaches about Jesus. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that you try to force Jesus into every verse in the Bible that you read, right? You're not looking, you're not trying to take apart every verse and be like, how does Jesus fit into all this, right? Sometimes you've got to just pull the lens back and look at the story as a whole and see how it's pointing forward to what he would do in the future. So that, that's helpful just as we think through uh, looking at the Bible as a whole. So as we start looking at this a little more closely now, uh, one theme that you see running throughout all of Scripture is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And that's going to be the focus of the remainder of, of today's lesson. God's kingdom was the dominant theme in Jesus' teaching. If you remember, when he began his public ministry, he came and he proclaimed, the time is fulfilled and what? The kingdom of God is at hand, right? He taught that his mission was to introduce the kingdom in its fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. So this is on your notes here. And I think this is a helpful definition that Roberts gives in his book. A good definition for the kingdom would be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Okay, so let me say that again. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And that's really going to be the focal point of our study over these next, next four months, um, that's what biblical theology really seeks to do, is to show us how that one statement is true uh, throughout all of Scripture. And I just want to give you kind of a synopsis. You'll see that there on your Scripture. We have those eight different points that Roberts breaks down, or those eight sections that Roberts breaks down in his book. And I just want to briefly mention these. We'll be expanding on these as we go through uh, each lesson. And you'll see the, the first five deal with the Old Testament, and the last three deal with the New Testament. So the Old Testament, first you have there the pattern of the kingdom. 
the pattern of the kingdom. In the Garden of Eden, we, we see the world as, God's, as God designed it to be. You have God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the garden, under his rule as they submit to his word. And, and to be under God's rule in the Bible is always to enjoy his blessing. It's the best way to, to live. So God's original creation shows us a model of his kingdom as it was meant to be. But then you have the second point there, the perished kingdom. Okay? You have the pattern of the kingdom, then you have the perished kingdom. And as we read through the scriptures, right? sadly, we see that Adam and Eve think that life would be better if they lived independently of God. And, and the results are disastrous, right? They turn away from him, and the death that was promised comes upon them. They're, they're no longer in God's place. He banishes them from the garden, right? And they're not under God's rule, so they do not enjoy that blessing that they once did. <coughs> Instead, they face his curse and judgment, as proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3. But God in his great love is determined to restore that kingdom, right? And so that's what you have as you move into the third point, the promised kingdom. Okay, starting in Genesis 12, we have God calling Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham, and he makes unconditional promises to him that through Abraham's descendants, he will reestablish his kingdom. They will be his people living in his land and enjoying his blessing, and through them, all peoples on the earth will be blessed, right? And that's the promise of the gospel. It's partially fulfilled in the history of Israel, but it's only finally fulfilled through Jesus Christ, who is the true offspring of Abraham, right? So in Genesis 12, you have that promise, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it was through that one offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the nations would indeed be blessed. Okay, so moving from the promised kingdom, then you have the partial kingdom. The Bible records how God's promises to Abraham are partially fulfilled in the history of Israel. Uh, you have the exodus from Egypt, right? God makes Abraham's descendants his very own people. Mount Sinai, he gives them his law so that they might live under his rule and enjoy his blessing as Adam and Eve had done before they sinned. And the blessing is marked chiefly by God's presence with his people in the tabernacle. Under Joshua, they enter the land, and by the time of Kings David and Solomon, they enjoy peace and prosperity. That was the high point of the history of Israel. They were God's people in God's place, the land of Canaan. They were under God's rule and therefore enjoying his blessing. But the promises to Abraham had still not been completely fulfilled. And as you read through the Old Testament, what was the problem? Sin. The unbelief of the people, the, the continual disobedience and the turning away from God. And that soon led to the dismantling of the partial kingdom as Israel fell apart. But in the middle of that, what would happen was God would send prophets, right? And in the middle of those sending prophets, he would tell them that if you continue down this road of disobedience, here's what's going to happen. But there is a day coming where one will come who will undo all of this, who will bring to pass all the promises of God. 
And so after the death of Solomon, civil war breaks out and the kingdom of Israel is split into two parts, as the scriptures refer to it, Israel and Judah. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And neither was strong. I, I preached on this a, a couple weeks ago and from the passage in Isaiah. But if you remember, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. And then over a, just over a century later, Judah goes into Babylonian exile, right? It's a very dismal picture <laughs> that you have as, as the scriptures um, on the Old Testament kind of close even when the people are brought back into the land from the Babylonian exile, it's not long before they begin their idolatrous practices again and their disobedience of God. And that's kind of how you have the curtain drop, so to speak, on the Old Testament, is Israel's back in the land, but they're still in rebellion to God. So in reality, they're still in exile to him. And then 400 years of silence, right? Until... John the Baptist shows up on the scene and begins proclaiming that this one is coming who is about to change everything. And that's what you have as you enter in to the New Testament. And Jesus begins with these words, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. The waiting is over is what Jesus is proclaiming God's king had come to establish God's kingdom and his life teaching and his miracles all proved that he was who he said he was God himself in human form he had the power to put everything right again right and he chooses this most unique way to accomplish it and that is the place where he looked to be the weakest, at the cross. If you are the son of God, come down, right? And yet there at the cross, Jesus is defeating his enemies. So paradoxical from what we think. We, I mean, just imagine being there looking upon that. That doesn't look like victory. That doesn't look like we're winning, right? And yet this is God's message, as he says in 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of the message that we preach, Christ and him crucified. It's only by God's grace that we can look upon that cross and say, that is truly God's victory for his, for his people. And so Jesus comes and, and he starts doing all these amazing things, Right? You see it in small snippets, this reversal of the curse. He starts healing people, right? He, he starts changing things with words that he has. He starts raising people from the dead, right? You just get all these little glimpses of the power. He, he silences demons who try to proclaim right theology, who are proclaiming, we know who you are. You're the holy one, quiet, <laughs> Right? He, he, he silences. You, you, you see this power. You see the power over creation. He speaks a word in the middle of a storm, and everything goes completely still in a moment. So Jesus is doing all these things. As a matter of fact, if you remember, when John the Baptist is in prison, and don't you just love this, just, just John the Baptist wrestling through this? He's like, man, I've proclaimed all these things about who Jesus is, and here I am in prison. And I'm like, are you the one? 
or should we look for another? And what does Jesus say? He, he doesn't say, yeah, I'm the one. He says, go and tell John this. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind eyes are opened. Right? He's, he's, he's pointing everything back to the Old Testament. John, you know your Old Testament, right? What was this one who was to come going to do? He's going to undo all the reverse. He's going to undo the, the, the effects of the, of the curse. And so you have Jesus just inaugurating the kingdom of God and then dying and resurrecting and his resurrection proving the success of this mission that he has come to accomplish on the cross and the truth as it is in Jesus. We see that proclaimed. So he resurrects, ascends back into heaven, and he sends his apostles out to proclaim the kingdom. And that's number seven there on your, on your notes. The proclaimed kingdom. By his death and resurrection, Jesus did all that was necessary to put everything right again and completely restore God's kingdom, but he didn't finish the job when he was first on earth. He ascends into heaven and makes it clear that there would be a delay before he returned. And as Peter said back here, let me scoot back here a little bit, in verse 15 of 2 Peter 3, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, right? God's gathering his people in as Jesus reigns in heaven and we are awaiting his return. Count the, the, uh, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He hasn't returned yet. People are still turning to him before that day when he comes to judge all men. And we live during this period. We live in this proclaimed kingdom period, which the Bible calls the last days, okay? Begins on the day of Pentecost when God sent the Spirit to equip his church to tell the whole world about Christ, and it will conclude when Jesus comes back. And then that's the eighth section there that Roberts lays out, the perfected kingdom and how we long for that day. That, that is the day we are all anticipating and looking forward to the day when Christ will return. Scriptures tell us there's going to be a great division on that day. His enemies will be separated from his presence in hell, but his people will join him in a perfect new creation. Then at last, the gospel promises will be completely fulfilled. And the book of Revelation describes a fully restored kingdom. God's people, right? So as we think about this, just think about Genesis 1 through 3 and all that took place there and think about Revelation 21 and 22 and all that takes place there. Revelation 21 and 22, what we see, God's people, that is Christians from all nations, in God's place, the new heavens and the new earth, under God's rule and therefore enjoying his blessing. And here's the promise that we have. Nothing can spoil that story. It truly is a happy ending and living happily ever after, right? Nothing can thwart that from taking place. So that's just 
a broad overview of, of where we're headed. We'll break down each of those sections a little bit more and start looking at various passages that relate to that. And again, the end goal in all of this is so that when we finish our class, hopefully you'll be able to step back and look at the scripture and say, now I know that when I get into a section in the word of God, I understand where that section fits in light of the whole and where it's working and that you don't lose sight of the forest for the trees that are, that are before you, okay? Because that can be very easy to do. You can get into a section of the Bible and you can just minimize it and just look at that section without having that broader perspective to say, I understand where this fits in, where it's headed, and how it's fulfilled in Christ, okay? All right, so about 10 minutes left. We're going to work through a little bit of this, um, of this first section, which was the pattern of the kingdom. And the pattern of the kingdom really is laid out for us in Genesis 1 and 2. So you can turn there if you'd, if you'd like to. We're just going to mention a few things as we work through that section. The pattern of the kingdom, Genesis 1 and 2. Um, first two chapters of the Bible, we see God's original perfect creation. They, they present us with this vision of how the world is meant to be. And there are two truths about creation that I want to focus in from these two chapters. The first of these two is this, and this is here on your notes, is that God is the author of creation. God is the author of creation. The Bible begins with that declaration in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He alone is eternal. He has no beginning, no end. Never been a time when this triune God has not been. And then we see in Genesis 1, he speaks a word and everything comes into being. Over the course of six days, he creates all things. And God the Father took the initiative on this. But we also see in Genesis 1-2 that the Spirit was involved. Scripture says here in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus, the Son of God, was the means through which all things were created. Let me get to John 1 verse 3. Somebody want to read that for us? Okay. So again, what we see here is this aspect of the, the triune God at work in creation. That's going to be important as well as we think about new creation and the work of the triune God. Colossians 1.16 also says this about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, this is really important. Watch this. All things were created through him and what? For him. That's another great passage that shows us the centrality of Jesus Christ in all of the scriptures. Why was everything created? For him. For his glory. To make much of him. The Bible stresses here in Genesis 1 and 2 that God was pleased with what he had made. If you remember, after God made everything, the scripture says that God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
And a couple of things that are extremely important to think about in regards to God being the creator of all things is, is that God is, is not only concerned with the spiritual, spiritual, but with the physical as well, right? God cares not only about our souls, but about our bodies as well. As Paul says in Romans 8, that one of the things that we're looking forward to are the redemption of our bodies, right? It's important to note why God created all things, as I mentioned there from Colossians 1.16, but there's a couple other passages that speak to this, which I think I've noted there on your, <coughs> on your notes. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. Somebody want to read that for us? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay, so just a, a great passage there. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, right? God, God was not deficient in any way, but he created all things for his glory. And that's what we see most clearly in Isaiah 43, especially the pinnacle of his creation, man. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, he says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we were made for the glory of God and to display his glory, to make much about him. Okay, so the first aspect is that God is the author of creation, as we see it in Genesis 1 and 2. But also, secondarily, God is also the king of creation. That's there on your notes as well. He's the author of creation. He's also the king of creation. As creator of all, he is Lord over all. He's the rightful king over everything he has made. And the only proper response to that truth is to acknowledge his rule and to worship him, right? God governs absolutely everything. And a passage that speaks well to this is Psalm 95, verses 3 through 7. If I can have somebody read that for us. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his. Also the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pastor and the sheep of his hand. Amen. Okay. So he is a great king above all gods. Everything you look at, God governs, he's over, he rules. And the only, again, the only proper response to that is, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down, especially as we think about not only is he our creator, but he is our redeemer. He is the one who has made us his own. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In much Eastern religious thinking, the natural world is believed to have emanated from God. And the result is that everything is a part of him, they would say. You don't kill an ant or a fly because it's divine, in a sense, along with trees and mountains and human beings and so on. However, the Bible will not allow us to, to think that way. 
God is transcendent. He's above and beyond all that he has made, and he is distinct from it. Uh, and this truth explains why the Bible so vehemently abhors idolatry. If God made everything, which he did, then to worship anything within creation as if it were God is bound to demean him because it is less than him. So God alone is worthy of worship. He has no equals. And our duty, and I would also say our delight, is to submit to him as our king and to give him the glory that he alone deserves. And we'll finish with this passage here out of Revelation 4, verse 11. If somebody can read that for us. Why is God worthy to receive glory and honor and power? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Okay? So, as we think about the pattern of the kingdom, we see God as the author of creation, and we see God as the king of creation. Next week, we're going to look at what it means to be made in the image of God, and what the goal of creation is. Is okay, so that's where we'll head next week um, to finish off this pattern of the kingdom. Okay. All right. Any any comments, questions? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Good way to conclude it. All right. Let's go ahead and pray. Indeed, we do thank you and, and praise you, Father, for. Uh, your kindness in giving us your word. You haven't left us uh, to ourselves. You haven't left us to just try to figure things out. You've given us your word. And Father, how I pray that we would treasure the revelation that we have in your word, that we can see how this all started, what went wrong, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do to make it all right. And thank you that you have not left us in our sins, but have redeemed us in the most incomprehensible way possible by sending forth your own son to live and die and rise on our behalf to make us your own. And we pray that the reality of that would be fervent, joyful worship emanating from our lives. So please help us to that end. Even as we go in now to hear your word proclaimed, may we go with joyful hearts that we have been made the people of God and we are the sheep of your hand. How we thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.